2: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, do you remember just about
0: 17 years ago how disappointing it was that the year 2001 was not like the year 2001 in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey?
1: Well, certainly it did not resemble the 1968 film 2001, A Space Odyssey. It did not resemble that that vision of the future. Not exactly. We were not... Uh, we were not traveling. We did not have a moon base.
0: I, I want my milk carton of corn to suck through a straw.
1: <laughs> well, that can be arranged uh, if, if that's if that's the definite um, uh, you know futuristic experience you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, this uh, this is a classic science fiction film. Perhaps the classic science fiction film. I mean, you can you can certainly make a case for other pivotal works of sci-fi cinema. But Stanley Kubrick and uh, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 ha- is a film that has stood the test of time, uh, inspired just countless other sci-fi visions, and uh, and, and yeah, d- definitely gave us this, this sort of benchmark uh, to look for in the future.
0: So the reason we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey is because this year – That movie is actually 50 years old. Yeah. It's hard to believe. It is. Half a century old. Uh, It was released in April of 1968. And so because of the 50th anniversary, because the movie is so endlessly fascinating to talk about, we thought we would devote today to a discussion of 2001, uh, the film itself, its ideas, and its legacy. Robert, how old were you when you first saw 2001?
1: Ooh, you know, I saw it when I was pretty young, so I don't have a very – um, concrete memory of it. I think my dad he either he had a had a VHS copy of it playing or it was on TV. I'm not sure, but I'd say whew, maybe I was eight or something. I'm not sure, but uh, it, it, I remember it being a very interesting film to watch because it was it has this dreamlike quality to it mm-hmm. that. Is, is there no matter what level of, uh, of awareness uh, you're approaching it with as a viewer. you know Whether you understand the more complicated uh, science fictional or philosophical uh, aspects of its message, mm-hmm. there's still this, this hypnotic quality to the film that draws you in.
0: I have a weird question about it. I wonder if a kid – Uh, for whom the plot pretty much goes over their head, Mm -hmm. actually understands the movie better than an adult who can grasp more of the content of the plot. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, because the movie is, in many ways, it's almost like a, more like a painting, or like a, you know, a, a work of art that is radically open to interpretation, where the stuff that the characters do, I'm not so sure that it matters as much as, more the kind of like visual themes established and the questions raised by you know the 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 spectacle before your eyes.
1: Yeah, yeah, the spectacle is uh, is a huge part of it. I I actually was tempted. I I, I thought, well, should I let my six year old see at least part of two thousand and one mm-hmm. uh, and just see what his take is on it? And uh, I I did not quite get around to uh, to to performing any a test of that sort. Um, but I have a feeling he would be drawn in by the the visuals for sure.
0: Just thinking about the visuals alone, it's hard to believe this movie's half a century old. Like we were saying a minute ago, it still feels so weird and so fresh and so intellectually adventurous. Apparently, you know, when it premiered, one of the things about the movie is that it's mostly silent. There are only actually very limited parts of it where characters are speaking to each other. And according to the stories about the premiere, the, the first audiences just hated it. Not everybody. <laughs> there were some people who saw, okay, this is revolutionary. Something very different and new and, and original is happening here. But a lot of the Hollywood hotshots who were in attendance just hated it. Uh, there were tons of people walking out of the theater. Allegedly, Rock Hudson walked out saying out loud, will someone tell me what the hell this is about?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it is a film in which – a lot of stuff does not happen. A lot happens. It's a mm-hmm. film that, that 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 kind of sums up the the ascent of uh, of humanity and where uh, humanity might go beyond the uh, beyond our planet. But at the same time, it, every time something seems to be happening, we kind of get a cut. You know, mm-hmm. the the scenes where characters are having pivotal discussions about what's happening. This becomes just sort of a staple of so many other films. Like most films, yeah. uh, are missing. The murder uh, that occurs in the film is not actually seen. So it, 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 when you're watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, there is almost this sense that someone is messing with you by removing these key bits of information that should tell you what you're supposed to think about.
0: Well, I can understand people – Hating it at first because it is in a way an intentionally challenging film. It's mm-hmm. it, it goes against narrative conventions uh, in a very deliberate way. A- another thing about it is just – I'm not usually a person to call out special effects first as a thing to love about the movie. But the visual effects in this movie are just unparalleled. Oh, I agree. In so many ways, they look astonishingly realistic for for – You know, a time in the 1960s when we hadn't even been to the moon yet. When this movie was made, we had not been to the moon. Our space photography was very limited. So it's amazing they could get something looking as accurate to the experience of outer space as as they did. But then at the same time... It it's so derealized, realized it's so mm-hmm. unreal, and uh, it has almost kind of a, a Dario Argento kind of quality. Though it, of course it predates Argento, but I mean, like the you know the strange lights and uh, the the
1: way the colors color our moods. It, it, it's so good. Yeah, I'm glad Argento did not direct it. By the way, it would have been a very <laughs> different film. Yeah, um, then the, the monk, the 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 uh, the dawn of man sequence might have been similar, but. Uh, But yeah, the special effects in this film are just so breathtaking. I feel like if if anyone out there is wondering what is it like to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey with Robert Lamb, it's like every five minutes me saying uh, aloud why can't we make why don't we make movies that look like this now you know yeah. why can't why can't why don't spaceships look like this anymore in films yeah. and basically like they don't look this good in anything else for instance 1972 silent running uh, another one of my favorite sci-fi films was directed by Douglas Trumbull who worked on 2001 worked on the effects and silent running looks fabulous mm-hmm. but it it it's not as pristine as 2001 and obviously you can point to a lot of different uh reasons for that but then there's you know you can you can say well these other films were not directed by Kubrick they maybe they did not have the budget they didn't have the right key artistic people in place uh this kind of perfect storm of, of creativity and intent but 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 you end up with this film that yeah just looks so unlike anything else and every single frame of this film i feel like you could you could print out and you could put on the wall. Yeah, and and no one would question the choice. It's also somehow a
0: movie that many people, I think, have tried to copy and been unable to. It's a movie the style of which is uncopyable.
1: Uh, my, I've talked about this a good bit with uh with my friend Dave. Uh, he's he often points out that you have the the sequel to this film, uh, two thousand and ten, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, which Kubrick uh, did not direct. Did, Kubrick did not direct. Came out in the the eighties. Oh who was the guy who directed 2010? Ooh, uh, he's the same uh, gentleman who directed outland as I uh, recall. Peter Hyams and
0: yes. not just outland, he made time cop. Oh okay. the guy who made 2010
1: made time cop. Well, it's interesting just if you just look at the trailers um, the, between the two, mm-hmm. and you see just the stark difference because on one on one hand you have the again, the, the pristine white, um, you know, almost you know, hermetically sealed uh, all, edible. Uh, seeming. Like you feel like you could just cr- bite into the white chocolate goodness of the spaceships in mm-hmm. 2001, A Space Odyssey. And then by 2010, everything is industrial and grimy. And not just the sets. It was the order of the day. It was, it was. but But not only the sets, but also the character interactions. Because mm-hmm. suddenly it's not this— this very subdued performance, limited uh, uh, interaction, limited discussions between characters. No, you have Roy Scheider, <laughs> front and center. Mayor, uh, uh, not mayor of Amity, <laughs> uh, uh, from Jaws. Uh, yeah, yeah. Chief of Police, Chief Brody. Yeah, Chief Brody's just right up front getting into, uh, you know, loud discussions with with all available characters. Mm-hmm. We're going to need a bigger spacecraft. <laughs> Before we keep going, let's, let's actually just listen to um, an excerpt from the original theatrical trailer for 2001.
2: Millions of years ago, before the human race existed, an adventure began. An adventure that ultimately leads man to confront his own destiny in a odyssey of exploration.
1: Sounds great. Even without those impressive visuals, I feel like you still get you, – you still hear that and you just sucked in.
0: Oh, yeah. The music's a big part of the movie. In fact, there, there are segments of the movie where the screen is black and it's just music. And yes. It, I think that's a very important part of the experience as well. Uh, so if you've never seen the movie and you don't want it spoiled, I don't know if that really makes sense with this movie. You might want to pause this and go watch it now. We're about to talk about what happens in the plot. But I would say this is not a movie that is – that is really going to be spoiled by you knowing what happens in advance. That's not really the point. Yeah,
1: because, again, it leaves so much for interpretation, and it's so visual. Uh, I would urge you definitely, if you have the ability, get the Blu-ray on this one, Mm -hmm. because this is a film where the higher definition available, the better.
0: So the movie's basically broken into four parts.
1: Would you say that's fair? Would you say three or four? Um, I would say it's broken into four parts, Uh, Kind of three separate movies (laughs) that are and, and it will feel like that. You're like, oh, I guess we're done with this section now. Uh, Let's follow this character. So
0: the first section, you get a title card. It says the dawn of man. And you've got this group of early hominids. I think it's suggested – well, not I think. It is definitely suggested that these are our ancestors, that you go back some number of millions of years and they are these uh, sort of desert savanna-dwelling ape-like creatures. Mm -hmm. And they are hanging around, eating plants, hiding from a leopard that attacks them and fighting with another band of ape-like creatures over access to a puddle of water and then one day they wake up and find this great black rectangle, this rectangular box that's known in the the story as the monolith. Yeah, this slab of matter that is unlike anything in their natural habitat. It's not only unlike anything they've seen, it embodies interesting mathematical characteristics like the the dimension ratios are one, four, and nine. So it's nine units high, four units wide, and one unit deep. Of course, one, four, and nine are the squares of the first three integers, one, two, and three. And uh, so after first being frightened by the monolith, and they, they kind of scream at it and do territorial displays. One of them gets the courage to go up and touch it, and then they all begin to touch it. And the encounter somehow triggers something in human evolution. The mechanism is not
1: explained, but something happens to these ape-like creatures, right? Yeah. they they In this amazing sequence, they one of them in particular, I believe this is Moongazer, uh, as he's referred to in the book, uh, picks up the a bone of one of these taper creatures that they're living among, mm. and realizes that he can wield it as a tool, right. he can wield it as a weapon.
0: Right. Grabbing the femur of one of these tapers mm-hmm. gives you leverage and that extra leverage makes all the difference in the world for these creatures who now suddenly have the ability to kill the tapers and eat the meat. Mm-hmm. And, and to fight off the predators. Right. Exactly. To fight off the leopard, to defend uh, – to win in territorial disputes with the other with the other ape-like creatures over the water puddle. And so in victory, then one of the ape-like creatures throws this bone up in the air and then we get one of the most fantastic mm-hmm. cuts in all of movie history where the bone immediately cuts to a spacecraft above (laughs) the earth it's like a five million year smash cut
1: it's also the reason that in mystery science theater 3000 the satellite of love Mm -hmm. looks like a bone oh really yeah Have they said that explicitly? Yeah, yeah, Joel Joel, uh, Hodgson says that explicitly. Oh, but it's shaped like a cartoon bone. It's like the two (laughs) two
0: little lobes on each side. It totally is, Or like a dog chew toy bone. And then, of course, after this, we're in the age of space exploration, which is where the rest of the movie takes place. So you've got this middle section that is not given a title card, so it doesn't. Let you know uh, explicitly this is a different part of the story, but a character named Haywood Floyd is flying around in space, travels to a space station and then to the moon to investigate an anomaly that's been discovered on the surface of the moon where researchers on a moon base have discovered an underground object generating a strong magnetic field. So they dig it up. And it's another monolith.
1: Right. I should also add that it's only in this sequence that we get any dialogue. We go what feels like an astounding amount of time in the film right. without any characters speaking to anyone. No narration, nothing. And it's beautiful. It's just hypnotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, those scenes um, of the, of, of the, the Taurus uh, space station rotating there with the classical music playing behind it. Absolutely, and that, that the the whole thing about the
0: space stations in this sequence is a really interesting and deliberate filmmaking choice on Kubrick's part. I think, mm-hmm. um, because very often what you want to show in in sci-fi of the time, you know, you had the sci-fi of the '50s, '60s, Flash Gordon type stuff. Uh, You you would have wanted to show spaceships as an exciting, fast-moving, powerful thing. Right. But instead, spacecraft in this movie are are presented as a thing, as a kind of like slow-moving, very careful
1: behemoth technology. Yeah, And uh, and I also love how the station itself that we see is unfinished. Yeah. So there's not this sense of – this pristine sense of, uh, all right, humans have done it. They're in space now. They've got it all worked out. No, there's this sense that even though everything this this technological world is uh, is, is so advanced compared to what we had then, and mm-hmm. also what we have now, in many respects, it. Um, it is still unfinished. It is still a work in progress.
0: We will definitely come back and talk more about the about the technological reality of the mm-hmm. the, the space travel sequence later. But um, so what happens in the So they find this monolith on the moon. It emits a powerful radio signal when sunlight touches it, and it seems to indicate that there's something else for them to find in orbit around Jupiter.
1: You know, upon rewatching it for this episode, this was the first time I realized that without that sequence. Um, The Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark would have been Uh very different because Uh clearly that's where Steven Spielberg uh, got the inspiration for the way the Ark is presented. You mean the opening scene at the end of the movie? Oh, yes. Yeah.
0: Don't look at it. Yes. Exactly. You know, that scene I think takes a page from 2001 in multiple ways. There's the sort of staging of the scene, which is clearly aesthetically derived from 2001. But I think also the mystery of the scene, how it's not really fully explained how Indy knows not to look at it, you Mm -hmm. know?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Interesting bit of Hollywood uh, gossip trivia, but uh, during the filming of Raiders, uh, the Ark and the Monolith were actually dating. Not many people know that.
0: (laughs) It should have known better than to trust an Ark. An
1: Ark (laughs) will break your heart. Every time.
0: Uh, So then we go to the next sequence, the third sequence of the movie, which is a crewed mission to Jupiter in a spacecraft called Discovery One. So you've got several crew members who are in hibernation. And then you've got two astronauts named David Bowman and Frank Poole who are awake. And the Discovery One, we find out, is controlled by an onboard artificial intelligence called HAL 9000. It's always been fun to point out, uh, especially years ago when I was wrestling with the sluggish IBM 486, that, of course, HAL as an acronym is just one letter removed from IBM, Ah, H-A-L. I actually never put that together before. (laughs) I don't know if that was intentional. I assume it was. Uh, But Hal advertises the fact that, you know, he's an artificial intelligence. He has conversations with people. He sort of presents himself as, in many ways, a person. Yeah. He straight
1: up says that he has consciousness, kind of
0: offhandedly. Yeah. Uh, And he also advertises that he is perfect and that he is incapable of error. And of course, when Hal begins to appear to malfunction, Bowman and Poole are really troubled by this. So they secretly decide to take Hal offline and complete the mission under human control without the artificially intelligent computer. Hal becomes aware of their plans and tries to kill them. Uh, He believes that if he's deactivated, it will put the mission in jeopardy. So Hal kills Frank Poole during a spacewalk and then tries to kill David Bowman. But Bowman manages to get inside the ship and deactivate the computer. And as he's doing this, there's this long – strange sequence where HAL begs for his life yeah. and i forgot how how unnerving that whole sequence is while wh- where the computer is begging not to be killed while the while the astronaut is taking out its memory yeah
1: yeah just the the, the what are you doing dave we tend to i i feel like i tend to remember just a little bit of it but it does it goes on for a, a while as he's slowly removing, well, first is he's gaining uh, access Mm -hmm. uh, to the chamber and then slowly removing each of those cards.
0: And then in the final sequence of the movie, Bowman reaches the destination on Jupiter and discovers another monolith there in orbit around Jupiter. And this monolith, unlike the others, which were just solid objects, appears to be some kind of doorway or gateway, which begins this surreal sequence that ends the movie where Bowman is apparently taken across vast distances and shown incomprehensible sights. It's It's hard to know exactly how literally to take – the things that he appears to be seeing, we're, we're shown a lot of things apparently from his perspective that are just colors and hard to understand.
1: Yeah, there's this sense that there's definitely an acid trip vibe to it. Yeah. I mean some of the the visuals where we see these sort of cosmic explosions taking place, like those are, are, are films of like oil. Uh, mm-hmm. That are very similar to some of those, like those oil projection patterns that you see in like '60s uh, uh, musical performances, where mm-hmm. they're you know projected on the, the on the screen or on the band itself. It reminds me of like
0: Stan Brakhage movies, like if you ever seen uh, Dog Star Man or anything like that. Experimental films that have a lot of things like close-ups of liquids being pressed between
1: panes of yes. glass and stuff. Yeah, that sort of thing. So you're you're left wondering: is this is this a that the gateway that we as we're seeing it mm-hmm. is this just like the the crazy uh, um, psychedelic experience that is that is happening to Bowman as he's kind of like squeezed through uh, the, the the fabric of reality, mm-hmm. or, you know, with space and time warping all around him. Is this essentially Stephen King's The Jaunt? Because he looks like he's jaunting in yeah. some of those uh, stills that we see.
0: Yeah. So, so like his visions seem to be intercut with these stills of his face being blurred and warped and like he, he's losing his mind. Yeah. And then Bowman finally ends up in a strange room that has like a glowing floor and neoclassical furniture and decorations. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have argued over what this scene means. But he essentially sees himself, other versions of himself, and then becomes them as an older and older version of himself. It seems to sort of suggest that many years pass with him living in this room, but it's not exactly clear. And then finally, he's laying in bed, apparently near death, and another monolith stands at the foot of his bed, and he appears transformed into some kind of glowing newborn baby with these creepy adult eyes. Adult eyes on a baby is just the most horrifying side. <laughs> uh, but th- it's this new form of humanity shown, and then he is finally shown hovering back over Earth. And a lot of people have argued, what does this mean? Has he come back to Earth to... What, has he been transformed? Is he back here to share some kind of knowledge with us? Is he back here to do something, to observe us, to destroy Earth?
1: Yeah, or indeed, I mean, it, it's also open to interpretation, really, like, how literally should I take this? Is, I mean, how much of the later portions of the film uh, are just purely, uh, you know, metaphoric? Am I supposed to really think about him becoming a giant star child and orbiting the planet? Um and, and certainly, there's a lot of evidence to support that you are. But then, on the other hand, I, I always feel like any kind of interpretation is always a, a you know, equal opportunity game. I feel like you can equally say, "Well, this is uh, this is all happening within the, the head of Bowman," or this is just kind of this is kind of uh, pointing the direction for the, uh, the the future evolution of of human civilization now that they have essentially made contact with this higher power
0: one of the things i love about 2001 is that i think it is a movie that is deliberately made to have extremely uh, compelling symbolic significance but symbolic in the in the original true sense of the word symbolic meaning something that is not just a sign pointing to one correct interpretation, but an intentional and valid way cues to lots of different themes. Like the, there are there are many, I think, legitimate different interpretations of two thousand one.
1: Yeah, like when I watch it now, I, I definitely get a sense of like he becomes a baby at the end. So mm-hmm. it, as as an adult uh, and as an adult with with a child, it's like I see this is a new beginning. Like mm-hmm. this is all you know, new possibility for bowman and or the human race but when i think I, I do remember watching it as a child and that last section of the film was like just you know super confusing as mm-hmm. one would imagine it was just dreamlike but also hypnotic like i said but when he becomes a baby uh, watching it as a child i was kind of like oh he, he's he, he's dead you know this is this is a reduction <laughs> Bummer, yeah. you know it's like he was this uh, capable grown-up astronaut hero dude and now he's a star baby uh, we, we've what a about, horrible thing. <laughs> we've talked about that before. Like, why is it that uh,
0: when you're a child, the greatest insult is to call something a baby? Yeah, you know, <laughs> like that. That seems like a really horrible thing when you're a kid. But now, of course, baby as adults, Bowman. you'd like, no, wait, I want
1: another life. Yeah, let <laughs> me go back. <laughs> yeah, and plus, you know, he's in he's orbiting in space, and yeah. and, uh, and and some of the. Uh, the sequel material and the the, the, the literary material accompanying it uh, demonstrate he has powers beyond, mm-hmm. well beyond that of a normal child. But but that's outside of the, the movie itself and we're largely just talking about the film.
0: There is one thing that has always stood out to me about the movie in, in a way that makes it almost completely unique among stories I can think of. And that is that the human characters are Dull. I mean (laughs) dull and it's great anyway. In fact, I think it's great because they're dull. And so let me try to explain what I mean. Uh, No human character really says almost anything of interest in the movie. Most of the movie is without dialogue and when the characters do talk, almost everything they say is banal. Mm -hmm. And so I want to say something about the movie that I would scoff at in pretty much any other context. And so I think the characters are boring on purpose and it works. Now, normally, if a movie had boring characters and somebody who liked the movie tried to defend it by saying, oh, but it's that way on purpose, I'd be like, oh, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, if you've been in a creative writing class, You've heard that kind of excuse. Somebody's like, your story doesn't make any sense. And oh, well, the that's all part are, of
1: my grand design.
0: Right. It's not supposed to make any sense. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, congratulations. Good job. <laughs> I mean, most of the time, that's just excuse making for a failure of somebody to, you know, create something in a compelling way. Um, but 2001 is a big exception. I think the human characters are boring. I think it's that way on purpose because judging from Kubrick's other movies, we know he could create characters that were interesting. And somehow the movie is better because they're boring. It makes us feel the movie's themes in an even more powerful way. And I think the reason is that this is a movie where the individual characters are not the protagonists. The protagonist is somehow the meta-organism of the evolving intelligence of the human species – uh, It's like the abstract entity of human civilization and human potential and it's hard to tell a story like that and make it interesting without sort of anchoring it within some character who symbolizes everything you're talking about. But Clark and Kubrick I think did it here. Like in the face of the cosmos, each individual human is vanishingly insignificant and banal but the potential of an intelligent civilization is vast and unimaginable.
1: Ah, that's a good read. I like that. Um, yeah these these characters so uh, there there's sort of two levels to my interpretation on it. on one i can't help but look at it now uh, and certainly as a night is a film from the, the 1960s mm-hmm. and this is uh this is a, a predominantly uh white male movie yeah uh these, these are some waspy characters and and they are they are dull they, to, to your point uh so it's it's interesting to watch it and kind of tear that apart because on one level, you're thinking, oh, well, is this just speaking to the zeitgeist of the time? And then how much of it is this intentional process? Uh, and and I, I do agree with you. I think it is intentional. We have those scenes um, where the crew members are interacting with Hal and Hal is so much more interesting yeah, he, than they he's are. He's the more human character. Like yeah. I, I know Hal far more than I know Bowman. Um, likewise, I I know uh moongazer more than I know uh, most of the characters in the film. Yeah. Uh, uh, we we see that that ape in particular, like struggling through stuff, figuring stuff out, and you get uh, arguably you get more of a sense of uh, of, of his values uh, as opposed to the the values of Bowman. Uh, a moongazer is definitely a more interesting character than Haywood Floyd. <laughs> um, I I want to say one more thing about the just the pace of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this film is – it is a rarity compared to so many other films because it does have this l- lethargic uh, – well, I wouldn't say lethargic. I would say quiludic uh, <laughs> pace where everything is is hypnotic and chill but also just really drawn out or at least as far as my movie-going experience goes. I, I do not become impatient with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's having those spaces, having room to breathe in the film that – allows you to think more about what's going on, to contemplate yes. the symbols. And I think there is also something to be said for the spaces that are afforded by the absence of uh, you know, a bunch of of, of, of you know, arguably unnecessary conversation among the characters or character development or emotional uh, resonance mm-hmm. with these characters. Uh, by, by keeping them so slim and, and kind of abstract, I'm forced to think more about them. Like, this is, I think, one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to terrible science fiction films as well. Right, yeah. Uh, or just bad or mediocre ones. Because in those films, you know, they may have the same frenzied pace of any other action movie. They might, uh, you know, and they, they might not even have that much uh, intelligent content to them but the the spaces are there in the quality mm-hmm. of the film uh, and i'm for and you know they don't give me enough to play with uh, uh as far as characters go or plot but i'm but i can set there and just think about something interesting on the set
0: i so you and i've had this conversation before and it It's definitely true that this is part of what draws me to bad movies as well. For some reason, I find a lot of bad movies thought-provoking in the way that a lot of competent movies are not because a competent movie will get you sucked into the plot more than a bad movie will. And when you're sucked into a plot – there there are a lot of pleasures in that as well. Like I enjoy being sucked into the plot of a movie. It it gets you into that flow state. You sort of like forget yourself and you just uh, become awareness of this other narrative. That's all great and great fun. But there's a different kind of great fun and stimulation to be had in the way you watch a story or a movie that does not arrest you in constant plot developments and and the character's emotions. And 2001 does that in a, in a very different way than a bad movie does. 2001 is a movie full of breathing room, like you're saying. it. It's constantly allowing you to think about what you're seeing rather than just being pulled along by it. The late Roger Ebert has an essay about 2001 uh, from his great film series where he talks about the, the appeal of the movie. And one of the things he says, I, I just wanted to quote – he says, quote, only a few films are transcendent and work upon our minds and imaginations like music or prayer or a vast belittling landscape. Most movies are about characters with a goal in mind, who obtain it after difficulties, either comic or dramatic. 2001 A Space Odyssey is not about a goal but about a quest, a need. It does not hook its effects on specific plot points, nor does it ask us to identify with Dave Bowman or any other character. It says to us, we became men when we learned to think. Our minds have given us the tools to understand what we live and who we are. Now it is time to move on to the next step, to know that we live not on a planet, but among the stars, and that we are not flesh, but intelligence. Oh, that's good. I think that says a lot of, of what I feel about the movie.
1: Yeah, uh, this is one of those cases where I definitely agree with, with Ebert. I, I find that I either completely agree with what he sa- had to say about a film or I, I I strongly disagree.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the best kind of critic is the critic who you like reading even when you fully disagree with
1: him. Oh, them. absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about 2001, A Space Odyssey, about uh, how it came to be and, and many of the fabulous Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com.
0: All right, we're back. So supposedly 2001 A Space Odyssey was developed by uh, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke on the basis of an idea from an earlier story by Clarke, right?
1: Yeah, uh, a story known as The Sentinel.
0: Also known as The Sentinel of Eternity. Uh, This was published in 1951. Basically, it's a story about an alien artifact in the form of a mineral pyramid buried on the moon. And Clark has apparently complained that the story contains so little of what's in 2001 that it really shouldn't be said that 2001 is based on it. But. I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's there. There's a monolith on the moon. It might not be shaped the same way, but th- that's already a compelling idea, right? Right. We go to the moon and we find something there waiting for us. Uh, though there's an interesting al- alternate take on what the function of that object on the moon could be. There's the idea that, what if aliens left behind some kind of uh technological intelligence detector alarm that s- recognizes a certain point of technological development on in the human species and then sends a signal back home saying like uh-oh now watch out these guys are coming.
1: <laughs> well that yeah it's kind of a yeah a cosmic security alarm. Yeah. I've also read that uh that there, there's at least one earlier Clark story that closely resembles the the Dawn of Man segment. Oh, really? Um, and one thing to keep in mind here is, of course, that the Clark was a was a prolific writer. He yeah. wrote a, a number of sci-fi stories. By the time uh, 2001 ca- uh, came into production, he had established himself as a major sci-fi writer and also experienced success as a science writer, often dealing with uh, topics related to futurism, computers, space travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he already had a career in which he had uh, gotten to explore so many of these concepts so it makes sense that 2001 would be a uh, a further refinement of those ideas
0: yeah and clark was known as a as a writer of what <laughs> It might be a silly word, but uh, what's often known as hard science fiction, yes. not, not like uh, space pirates and uh, space fantasy, but science fiction that's based on some reasonable appreciation of the laws of nature. Right.
1: And uh, th- there is a novel, 2001, uh, but it, it's worth noting that he wrote it uh, concurrently with the film. So the, the film is not based upon 2001, A Space Odyssey, the book, but they both emerge from the same process Uh, and the book is worth checking out i especially enjoyed the dawn of man portion of the book because uh you you do get to spend more time with those apes and they have names they have names yeah uh, such as moon gazer yeah
0: now, of course, Stanley Kubrick was well established as a respected filmmaker by the time he made 2001.
1: Right, his previous film, uh, uh, pr- you know, prior to this was Doctor Strangelove from '64. Okay. Uh, he uh, directed uh, the excellent Spartacus in 1960, 1957's uh, Paths of Glory, but nothing, nothing prior to 2001, I would say, really, you know, points toward this as like the next logical evolution of Kubrick's. Uh, 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 filmography. Right. I mean, Kubrick experts may disagree with me on that. There, maybe you can you can you can point to examples of that. But uh, for the most part, like this is this is su- suddenly a sci-fi epic, a space epic. Uh, from someone who has not really dipped their toes in any kind of genre material previously.
0: Well, I mean, I think it makes sense that his career would take a turn like this at this time. Mm-hmm. This is 1968. I mean, True. this this is a year of change for the modern world. Uh, it's often recognized as this this pivotal turning point where, you know, modernity becomes whatever the world is now, that there's some kind of upheaval, uh, changing of culture, changing of values, a... Uh, a rebellion against the old ways. And, and 2001 is definitely that in terms of many aspects of filmmaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost as if in 68 a, a crazy space brick right. came and we <laughs> all touched it, right? Yeah. Now, of course, we, we know from Kubrick's uh, later films, you know, he, would, he would definitely explore uh, more you know, genre territory, weirder territory with works like uh, 71's A Clockwork Orange, 1980's The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but those are still far more narrative and traditional films mm-hmm. compared with 2001. 2001 stands out even in um, a, a filmography such as Kubrick's. And of course, uh, we also have to recognize uh, Douglas Trumbull, who I mentioned earlier, uh, the visual effects wizard, largely responsible for the many amazing lasting effects in the film. He also went on to work on Blade Runner. Oh, another great looking movie. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, and also, he was at least in an advisory capacity on the Tree of Life No, oh, I never saw it yet. Oh, it's good. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and of course, as I mentioned, he directed one of my favorite sci-fi films of the era, 1972, Silent Running, starring Bruce Dern.
0: I don't know if I've asked this before, but which came first, Silent Running or the Lorax?
1: Oh, well, let's see. Lorax. Is, is one an influence on the other? Well, I'm not sure offhand. I'd have to ask you to look up when uh, when the Lorax emerged <laughs> from mm. his stump. The Lorax was published in 1971. Ooh, one year before Silent Running. Mm. Mm. Maybe they kind of emerged from the same stump. I mean, they're both emerging from, again, we we have to like you pointed out in 68 we have to think about this uh the various changes that were occurring the, the various revolutions that were occurring in uh, in in the uh the in the zeitgeist in the way people were in, uh, interacting with their world and certainly mm-hmm. the environmental movement was one of those uh and, and both the lorax and the silent running uh you know echo those sentiments
0: well robert are you ready to drill down and focus on some individual elements of the movie let's do it so we wanted to just look at some aspects of different parts of the film, ideas explored there, what's interesting or what's scientifically accurate, what's not. Um, and so I, I guess it would make sense to first start with the Dawn of Man segment, the, the uh, segment with the ape-like creatures that are exposed to the
1: monolith and somehow learn to use tools. Which are, by the way, some of the best-looking uh, ape suits you will find in any motion picture.
0: I mean, Hollywood history is replete with ape suits, uh, great great and small and, and good and bad. And man... I love a bad ape suit. Like I love the movie <laughs> Robot Monster where the <laughs> yes. aliens that invade Earth are like a, a –
1: it's a gorilla suit with a fishbowl on the head. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, these are some good suits. Yeah, good suits and great performances too. You had uh, like, very physical mime performances that brought these to life based on the movements of actual primates. And then of course we have actual primates in the scenes as well because you mm-hmm. have actual chimp, uh, uh, like young chimps standing mm-hmm. in as the young members of this tribe. And the weird thing is, you don't necessarily even think about it when you're watching it. Like, everything works so well in that scene. You're not thinking, oh, we have people in ape costumes and actual apes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good
0: point. So I was wondering you know, is there any way of looking at this and saying, how how realistic is this? I mean, obviously we don't know everything about uh, our ancestors from this period, and the, the, that part of the movie does not say exactly how long ago it is, though uh, in the middle part, Haywood Floyd says that the monolith on the moon is 4 million years old. So if they're all roughly the same age, mm-hmm. if they were put there at the same time, that might put this scene on Earth uh, around 4 million years ago. So I was wondering, what were our ancestors like then? And Supposedly, the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees lived sometime between about 10 and about 4 million years ago. And the hominids depicted in this scene appear to be, would you say, semi-bipedal, like not standing upright, but often perched in a crouch on two legs and uh, able to stand up, but often sort of hunkered near the ground.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that.
0: But then, of course, when the one hominid gains the use of a bone tool, this one finally begins to stand upright in a full fighting posture. And as best I can tell, there's still vigorous debate in the scientific community about the origins of human bipedalism. This is not a settled question. Uh, it used to be commonly assumed that human ancestors began to walk upright on two legs when they moved down from the trees, down from an arboreal environment onto the grasslands and the savanna, and so they stood up, you know, the classic explanation was stood up to see over the grass. But for whatever reason, down on the savannah, that's uh, when we started going bipedal. And this was still a dominant explanation in the 1960s when 2001 was made. But this idea, I think, has, has largely fallen out of favor in the past couple of decades for several reasons, one of which is evidence that seems to show that humans were still primary tree dwellers or at least highly adapted to climbing and living in trees after they became bipedal. So that, that's a strange kind of upset of the picture a lot of mm. people have of human evolution. But uh, there's evidence, say from from ancient hominid skeletons like Australopithecines, that at the same time our legs seem to show that we had upright posture. We also still had shoulder blades and, and hands adapted for living in a tree environment. So the picture this movie paints was probably more uh, – was more a feature of the dominant theories of the time and wouldn't be quite so accurate today. But the picture it paints of the the origin of tool use I think has always been a really fascinating thing. Earlier I mentioned that essay by Roger Ebert about the movie in his great movie series. and And he says this also. He says, quote – Uh, in In the first movement of the film, quote, prehistoric apes confronted by a mysterious black monolith teach themselves that bones can be used as weapons and thus discover the first tools. I have always felt that the smooth artificial surfaces and right angles of the monolith, which was obviously made by intelligent beings, triggered the realization in the ape brain that intelligence could be used to shape the objects of the world. I think that is fascinating because – so he's saying that it's not necessarily even something magic about the the monolith, you know, Mm -hmm. that it did something physical to their brains maybe. But that it literally could have just been a form, like a a form that they observed that they'd never seen before. And by simply seeing this form, it triggered something in them. Oh, just kind of like mere mere inspiration. Yeah.
1: Just say, oh, shapes like that are possible.
0: Yeah, and and I I wonder – I mean I do wonder if something like that is – but not so much that aliens put a thing on the earth. But I mean you always have to wonder about those moments. Like we don't know the answer of what triggered the evolution of hominid intelligence millions of years ago, uh, which eventually led to language and tool use and human civilization and all that. But one is tempted to imagine individual on-the-ground scenarios. Like obviously we've got an intellectual capacity to make and use tools. But to some extent, there had to be moments of proto-cultural and technological transition, right? A moment when an ancient hominid suddenly understood that an inanimate object like a stick or a bone could be used as a tool to do something or could be used in a different way than it had been used before. And it's, it's just amazing to wonder what did that moment look like? What did she see or hear or feel that allowed that jump across the chasm of, of how an object can be manipulated and used
1: yeah and, and indeed it, it it was probably not so cinematic right. <laughs> you know I, I it's easy to imagine uh you know an individual making a discovery like that and then either not utilizing it uh you know, and treating it as a, a curio or dying before they can pass it on and mm. then someone else another individual has to make the same discovery years later and maybe that one picks up maybe it doesn't um uh, but certainly uh, it 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 works I feel like the the scene itself in the film works as a great illustration of this overall movement.
0: I almost feel like this is something that i you know I want evolutionary anthropologists to to think about like is is there a site that could have been seen somehow a way a, a way of mimicking something seen in the environment that could produce the inspiration for tool use.
1: Hmm. Well, we'll have to to maybe look into this because uh, tool use among animals is is always a fascinating topic. And it's something we continue to learn more and more about, particularly thinking about the uh, – I believe the the largely uh, German uh, experiments taking place with – with tool using birds and observing how and to what degree they'll use uh, you know sticks on various tasks.
0: Oh yeah, we've done uh, we've done whole episodes on mm-hmm. bird intelligence and yeah, there's extensive tool use by birds. Uh crows and corvids show really startling kinds of tool use, you know, on the level of what you'd you'd expect to see from an ape.
1: Right. Yeah. So yeah, what did it look like though? The first uh the first crow to to actually pick up a twig and use it as a tool? Uh, what might that have looked like if we'd had kind of a like a god's eye view of the whole process? All right, well, let's throw this bone in the into the air, Joe, and move <laughs> on to the age of space travel. You know, one of the best things I think about the technological
0: accuracy of the movie is that they don't have magical gravity plating yes. on the floors, and th- this was standard in the science fiction of the time. That you know, you'd have a spaceship and people just walk around in it because why not?
1: Oh, and it's and it's largely standard afterward. Like yeah. you'll find some pretty you you'll find some some sci-fi that that's pretty serious about its science but when it comes to gravity uh, on the ship they just they just go ahead and just assume there's magic gravity it's like ultimately easier to just go ahead and chalk that one up to magic so we can talk about other things um it I mean it's one of the reasons that I, uh, I, I really like The Expanse, mm-hmm. uh, the, the television series, uh, book series as well. In the, they don't cheat? They don't cheat on the gravity. I mean uh, there may be some case to be made for some level of cheating. But for the most part, they take the gravity seriously and it's a, a part of the, the, the plotting as well.
0: Yeah, and so all of the the artificial gravity in 2001 A Space Odyssey is created by real forces, by, by rotating force. Mm-hmm. So uh, just like we've talked about in our artificial gravity episode, you've got a space station that's a rotating wheel. This uses the angular momentum of the rotation to create a downward pressure on the floor inside the wheel where people can walk around. Uh, and even in the spaceship, in the Discovery 1, there's like a big um, – spherical kind of command area that has a segment of it with artificial gravity in it uh, that's created by rotating a a sort of ring around the middle. Now, I have read some analysis that says one problem with the Discovery 1 artificial gravity is that Given what we're looking at in the movie, it is not big enough and would have to spin too fast to create a realistic artificial gravity environment because there would be excess Coriolis forces.
1: Yeah, I believe we went into this a little bit on our um, our artificial gravity episode. Yeah, that, yeah, you would you would probably need a bigger wheel.
0: Yeah, you probably would. Uh, so the brief refresher: the Coriolis force is is basically just uh, strange, counterintuitive movements that happen when you're within a rotating frame of reference. So if If you imagine people sitting on a merry-go-round, like horses going around and one of them tries to throw a ball to the other one, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be so easy, right? Right. Because it's rotating. It's not moving in a straight line. Uh, So you try to throw a ball to somebody and you are maybe throwing the ball to where they would be if they were moving in a straight line, but they're rotating. So the ball appears to curve off path. It doesn't seem to make any sense.
1: Oh, before we move on, I should also point out the other big obvious um, um, aspect of the presentation of space travel in this uh, in this movie. And that is that there is there is no sound in space. Mm -hmm. And they they adhere to this in a way that virtually no other film does. Yeah. Like even pretty smart film, even films and properties that will go ahead and try and be realistic with gravity. They're like, nope. if we're having a space battle. Nobody's going to watch it unless they're explosion noises. Right. Uh,
0: and, but there, there are noises for the astronauts, but they're internal right. noises. That's fantastic. Like when the astronauts go out for EVA, there is this almost deafening hiss of life support systems mm-hmm. within their suits. And I was reading a little bit about what astronauts do actually hear when they're on their spacewalks. Uh, and apparently, yeah, they mainly hear their own life support systems. They hear like pumping and fans and stuff like that within their suits. But it's kind of creepy to imagine because imagine trying to do mechanical work with tools when you can't hear anything you're doing,
1: yeah, it's it's a it's it's a different reality than we're used to dealing with. You yeah, know, normally you should be able to to hear your tools and even yeah. if you're not. You're not consciously thinking about it. That's part of your 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 sensory experience of the uh, of, of of the activity.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it'd be deeply unsettling to go and loosen a bolt and I just hear nothing. It's yeah. completely silent. But they have to uh, astronauts on spacewalks have to do things like that.
1: That's why you got to have those explosive bolts, Joe. Because <laughs> you just push a button and you're done. No, uh, no, sitting there cranking them around. Oh, there's some good explosive bolts in the movie too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
0: uh, there was one part where I thought I caught a mistake in the movie. I thought I caught a gravity mistake where there's a scene where they're flying in a moon shuttle uh, to a thing on the surface of the moon. And we just did an episode uh, about coffee in space. Haywood Floyd and his buddies, they're pouring out a carafe of coffee to pour coffee into cups. And I was like, hey, that wouldn't work. But then I realized, oh, wait a minute. Now this shuttle is presumably not actually in a zero g environment. Yeah, it's flying over the surface of the moon. Right, so it would be something more like imagining being in an airplane. Mm-hmm. But then again, I thought I came back on that and I was like, well, but an airplane wouldn't work on the moon. Because airplanes have to generate lift by creating a differential flow of air under mm-hmm. the wings. And, you know, so you go generate forward thrust and then there's a differential pressure of, of uh, flow of air above the wing and below the wing or the aerofoil, whatever it is. And then that lifts the plane up. On the moon where there's no atmosphere, you couldn't do that. So how would you even have air travel on the moon?
1: Well, as far as the the coffee aspect of this problem goes, they do – Kubrick does make the the fabulous choice of simply cutting away Mm -hmm. before we see coffee actually poured. So we we end up having lengthy discussions later on about how that coffee might have worked, but the magician doesn't reveal his trick.
0: Well, but there's a huge amount of attention paid in general in the movie to – Allowing life to continue in microgravity or zero gravity environments. Oh yeah, right? the Food,
1: for instance, yeah. uh, either being sucked through the straw or Ugh. or scraped off of that uh, that tray. That wonderfully uh, appetizing uh, green paste. It uh-huh. looks like like the worst possible store bought guacamole you could <laughs> obtain. Like the, not the, the cool kind of guacamole we can get now, uh-huh. but the kind of store-bought guacamole that you could only – that you got in like the, the 90s.
0: I would say all the food – now, you're talking about the scene on the Discovery 1, yes, but yeah. that's in a simulated gravity environment. Right, but it's still there. disgusting. It, right? it is disgusting. Yeah, they – it looks like – to me, it looks like what they're eating is different colored versions of the, the – I don't know, whatever that stuff is on the top of a lemon bar. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm, about? Yes. Uh, like that just kind
1: of gelatinous consistency yeah. stuff. Ugh. Just kind of scraping it off with that uh, – with a device. It kind of looks like the thing that the Romans used yeah. to scrape their skin in the ba- in the baths. Ugh. Yeah. Except I guess it's – you
0: know, this is like corned beef
1: flavored lemon bar. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh but yeah so so you've got the space travel scenes in in the zero g space shuttles in the middle section of the movie where they're eating and drinking out of like corn cartons I guess liquid corn liquid carrot seems kind of gross the the flight attendants have these grip shoes that allow them to walk around by gripping the floor i guess it's some kind of velcro like thing
1: yeah yeah you might have missed it in the film cuz they only spend like a half hour <laughs> establishing <laughs> this technology but i, I say that it's it's not a not a, not a second of it's boring but mm. But they do firmly establish how they're walking around.
0: An amazing comic relief moment is the moment where Haywood Floyd is on the flight. I think he's just been sucking up some uh, some corn carton, Mm -hmm. you know, like a corn through a straw. And then the next thing we see is him staring at the instructions for a (laughs) zero-gravity toilet. It says, like, passengers are advised to read instructions before use. And then there's this massive column of text. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He's, like, biting his knuckle. Uh, But that does also play on, on on some real space issues like you've talked about before with the the emergencies of, of bladder control in zero gravity.
1: Oh, certainly. Yeah. About how the, how the bladder doesn't fill up from top to bottom, uh, but from all sides in, and then suddenly it's the last second and you've got to go potty. Yeah. Um, yeah. A tremendous amount of research and development has gone into creating a better bathroom experience uh, in space. And for, for great reason. I mean, this is a, a Basic aspect of how the human body works, mm-hmm. and one you absolutely need to maintain hygienic control of. In, you, a, in a in a microgravity environment?
0: You, did you know how the early space command uh, design did not take that into account? Like in his first orbital flight, Alan Shepard. Well, actually, I think not. While he was in flight, I believe it was before liftoff. He had to he had to pee in his spacesuit, and he oh, was, yes. they did not give him any anything to deal with this. Uh, They just figured, you know, the flight would be so short that he could hold it. (laughs) But then there were launch delays and so he's there in his suit for hours and hours and he's got to pee so he just went and it shorted out some of his sensors and equipment. Uh, it's kind of an embarrassing story that they were like, "Ah, we don't need to worry about that.
1: Isn't this scene uh, presented in The Right Stuff, the motion picture? Oh, I, I don't know. I seem know. to recall it is. Uh, oh, okay. Unless that's a false memory, I seem to recall this, uh, this scene taking place. Well, if
0: it does, apparently that's a true story. But, but more about the way the movie deals with space travel, space communication, all that, beyond just the toilets. Uh, so one thing that it does correctly acknowledge is the the time delay between signals received and, and transmitted uh, between, say, a ship en route to Jupiter and the Earth. Like, there's a part where the astronauts on the Discovery One going to Jupiter, they do an interview with the BBC, and the BBC guy is like, we had to edit out the seven-minute delays between questions and answers. But also. Also, once they actually do the interview, it, when you're thinking about that, it, it seems kind of like, what? Because there are parts where the interviewer asks such dumb questions if you're not going to get an answer for seven minutes. <laughs> and it seems like he should have been more concise.
1: Yeah, you, th- you would think
0: so. Now, one thing the movie demonstrates that uh, that I think we have not yet figured out from a scientific perspective is the idea of hibernation, human right. hibernation on board spacecraft. So uh, on the Discovery 1, you've got two astronauts who are awake and sort of minding the store, and then you've got a whole other crew of astronauts who are in hibernation. And it's yeah, kind of
1: sarcophagus-looking devices oh, that are very uh it's very, very creepy, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and, and like some of the – like I think – I can't remember if it's Poole or Bowman, but one of them is drawing them while they're in hibernation. Oh, yes. And
1: Hal is, uh, is commenting, it looks very good, Dave. you've <laughs> really been working on your, your skill. That's great.
0: But they say the hibernation is like sleep. They breathe once a minute. The heart beats three times a minute. And body temperature is three degrees centigrade. And as far as I know, th- they don't explain in the movie really how this works. And as far as I know, this is not possible.
1: Right. I mean, certainly, hibernation continues to be of, of key interest to researchers for a number of reasons. Okay. Oh, and, I should
0: have said not possible yet. Sorry. Right.
1: Yes. But, it, but it's one of the reasons that we keep looking at hibernation, hibernation in uh, actual organisms because I mean, there are a number of different health, potential health benefits there, uh, but also the ability to use this for long-term space travel is, is very attractive. Now, the explanation in 2001 is that it's not so much of a, a stasis situation. So they're not traveling between stars or anything. But rather, it's about reining in consumption of air, water, and food for the travel portion of the mission. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you don't need the doctor until you get there or, you, or, you know, or an astrophysicist or wh- whatever the specialists are. You, you don't need them on the way. So why feed them and water them and give them, uh, a, a, the you know, finite uh, portions of the atmosphere rations until you get there, right? Right. And hibernation would seem to be the, the biologic process to look to here because, I mean, it's uh, – We've seen examples of tr- in true hibernators of greatly decreased uh, metabolic activity, uh, ability to withstand extreme cold, and uh, and resistance to muscle atrophy while they're under. Uh, that's that's one of the amazing things about uh, like uh, 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 any hibernating species. But mm. if you're going to look at something even that's like a like hibernation light. Uh, arguably like uh, like various uh, bears, the fact that they can essentially be immobile for such a long period of time and get out and all their muscles still work, yeah. you know, it's 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 amazing well, from I a mean, human
0: perspective. Uh, muscle atrophy is a problem even from the point of view of active astronauts in yeah. reduced gravity. I mean, if you're on the space station, you've got to exercise vigorously uh, to try to maintain some of your your bone density and muscle strength because what you you don't have a floor to push against.
1: Yeah. Now, one thing I sort of take issue with, and again, this I'm 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 not nitpicking here too much, but it's said that the hibernation is like sleep, but I, I've read accounts that sleep the sleep like aspects here might not match up with uh with reality all that much. Uh, I've seen the hibernation of arctic ground squirrels. Uh, compared to a kind of awful insomnia, uh, where the where the creatures actually have to extend a fair amount of uh, energy to heat back up so that they can sleep, huh. that sleep is perhaps something that is um, that's not possible while you're truly hibernating. Yeah, uh, which, uh, which 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 uh, is fascinating to think about. So um, it it also does remind me of uh, of another uh, science fiction work of Orson Scott Card. Uh, oh, okay. his. Um, uh, he, he had a, an older novel titled uh, Hot Sleep. Mm-hmm. And the idea here was that uh, that suspended animation was kind of like an awful boiling insomnia. It was uh, that, that one experienced uh, while they were in transit to another place. Oh, that sounds bad. Yeah. But I always think of that when I read about uh, the, this idea that hibernation is not sleep. It may be more like hot sleep. Ugh. Now we're back to the jaunt. Yes, yeah. There Uh, That's another one. I feel like Stephen King's The Jaunt might not have been possible without 2001. Yeah, I wonder.
0: But uh, well, speaking of sleep, there's another thing that I thought was worth mentioning maybe is there's a scene on the Discovery One where it appears that the astronaut Frank Poole is – I could be mistaking what's going on in the scene. But he appears to be doing some kind of light bathing. Like Mm -hmm. he's in his underwear and he's laying on a slab under a bunch of lights um and i you know i wondered is that supposed to be what's going on there and it would make sense because light regimes matter to astronauts what kind of light you're exposed to Uh, does have an effect on your body, on your circadian rhythms on everything. I mean, I've read about reports of astronauts sometimes having trouble sleeping on space stations and the different kinds of light and exposure to different kinds of light at different times could help alleviate that problem. Like if you're exposed to a fluorescent light that's putting out blue frequencies, this could lead to trouble getting to sleep and you might need to turn on an LED, some kind of different kind of light if you want to maintain your daily cycles correctly.
1: Yeah, I like the circadian rhythm uh, interpretation of that scene. Otherwise, he's just bored and decided to strip down and hang out, you know?
0: (laughs) Totally unrelated to what we were just saying. Well, actually, no, sort of related to sleeping in space. One thing I love it predicts is that there are hotel chains on the space station. Oh, yeah. So I love uh, uh, Haywood Floyd gets up to the space station on the ring module, you know, with the artificial gravity and he's walking around and we see like a Howard Johnson's and a Hilton
1: It's such a – that whole station is just so stylish. I just just want to be there. Yeah. And if I was there, I could just check into the hotel and I'd be good to go.
0: Well, I don't necessarily think that's all that implausible. I I wonder about commercial hotel chains getting into someday uh, space stations. I mean we've already seen at least – I can think of at least one company working on uh, space station habitats like uh, Bigelow Aerospace, which has been working on orbital habitats. I think the guy behind that company was like a like a hotel or motel chain
1: guy. Yeah, I think we will get to the point where there'll be there will be orbital hotels. Now, will they have bedbugs? Well, I don't know. It depends. What will the what will the, you know cosmic radiation and occasional solar radiation swells due to those bedbugs? Maybe they'll become uh, giant mutants, rampaging through the uh, the the orbital wheels. The answer is yes. <laughs> But what is a
0: space holiday in without some mutants? That's
1: true. I would hope that, I mean, we're basically doing all the legwork here for uh, future sci-fi writers. Yeah. Uh, take note. Yeah. holiday in, in space. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be the franchise.
0: All right. Should we take another break and then come back, talk a little bit about HAL and AI and That's stuff right. like that? That's right. We should. All right. We're going we're gonna to be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. All
1: right, we're back. So before we get into talking about how, I do need to point out that we do see some scenes where... It looks like the the uh, uh the the crew members of the Discovery are using iPads. They have yeah. these wonderful flat screen devices and that's just one of those those moments where you're like, "Oh man, this this film totally got it right." I mean, they missed iPads uh, you know, they were a little early on the uh on the prediction, but there it is. So maybe everything else in the film, it's just a matter of time.
0: Like most other things though, I think they did not correctly predict miniaturization, so everything is very big. Yeah. So obviously, as we were talking about earlier, one of the huge themes dealt with in this movie is the concept of artificial intelligence. Especially if you consider it a story about intelligence itself, mm-hmm. uh, you know, biological intelligence and then machine intelligence. This is, this is one of the key features of the story. And as we said before, Hal 9000, the computer, is somehow the most interesting character in the movie. Like, he has much more interesting things to say than the people do.
1: Yeah, and I feel far more for him. When he essentially dies, than the actual human characters who die, uh, only one of whom we get to know at all and then very barely. And I probably feel more about Hal's death than I do about, uh, you know, the nameless uh, nameless, uh, ape that's beaten to death.
0: You know, I wonder if exactly what you're feeling there, empathy for a computer more so than your fellow human being, is – I I have to wonder if maybe that's intentional too, and supposed to make us a little worried. Well,
1: like I said earlier, we do not even see that one human death. Uh, right. We see the the uh, HAL-controlled um, uh, EVA pod moving towards him. And then the next shot is – are the are the pod and the human uh, – the the corpse just tumbling through the void.
0: Well, I mean even the characters say in the movie – Poole, the character who gets killed by Hal, uh, says at one point in this BBC interview from the spacecraft, he says he's just like a sixth member of the crew. You very quickly get adjusted to the idea that he talks and you think of him uh, really just as another person. And I think that that is in a sense quite literal – That there is this risk that we think of machines as people, and research has borne that out. I mean, there have been tests that if a machine talks, if it uses language, if it uh, uses social conventions, do people start to treat it like a person? And uh, I haven't read this research in a while, but last time I checked in on it, I mean, it seemed like the consensus was, yes, we very easily, quite readily start attributing human characteristics to inanimate objects if they just talk and stuff like that. If oh, they, yeah. they look like an animal or a person. You
1: draw a smiley face on it and, yeah. and you begin to feel bad if somebody gives it a kick. Yeah,
0: the, that's a person now. I mean, think about uh, if you ever watched those Boston Dynamics videos uh, where there are these four-legged robots that walk around in the parking lot and stuff. And Oh, and they have
1: the guy come and test it by kicking it? Yeah,
0: somebody kicks it to see if it can keep its balance Mm because they're they're testing its uh, locomotor capabilities. Like, can it stay on its feet if somebody tries to throw it off? But when I see that, I'm like, what a mean person. How could you (laughs) kick that animal like that? And it's a robot. yeah. This is a huge blind spot for the human mind and it could be that they were anticipating this kind of research. I mean before it was really even out that, that Kubrick and Clark may have been trying to make a point that like we very easily uh, fall victim to thinking of machines as people if they even resemble people in the barest
1: sense. Such as speaking like a human or, or – or seeming to think like a human or just having that one focal point, that red uh, light that seems to be an eye.
0: Yeah. Just giving it the eye. If it didn't have the red light and just talked, I wonder how if we would feel the same way. Yeah. Now, another thing about Hal that, that's kind of disturbing is that Hal describes it, itself, himself, however you characterize him, I don't know. I, I think he, he sort of presents himself as male-gendered, I guess. Hal says that he is, quote, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. That seems like a bad impression to give an AI. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't teach him to think that way.
1: Yeah, when people think that way uh, or express themselves that way or, or tweet that way, we we instantly say there's something wrong with that person.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you would think that any good computer program, especially one as complex and difficult to understand as a conversational AI module, should have – debugging features Mm -hmm. like it should be aware of the fact that it can malfunction and should have built-in processes for rooting out malfunction and fixing it
1: yes i'm i mean the only other scenario i can think of is that if it is important as it is on this discovery mission where it's in charge of looking after everyone's life then perhaps it it is advantageous to lean into sort of the godlike qualities of hal that hal of course hal does not make mistakes because if hal makes a mistake then we're all dead
0: yeah but i think hal is actually a very good early vision of ai i mean this again this was back in the 60s and computers were not like they are today it may have been harder to imagine they would ever get there but There's a lot that's smart about the way Hal is characterized as an AI that goes – an AI that goes off the rails and becomes murderous because they don't go the Terminator direction. It's like, you know, oh, I've got to – I've got to eliminate humanity. Hal's just trying to do its job.
1: But we're also – and we're also not privy to like all the – like Hal didn't sit there and saying, look. Yeah, I killed him, but this is why I killed him. This is why I killed all these these individuals as well. Like it's it's left for us to try and guess at what the what the what the full uh, um you know rationale there is mm-hmm. in the computer's thinking. It, or at least and that's the thing I think too. it's
0: explored more in the book,
1: but yeah. yeah. But but I love how it is in the the film because there is this this sense of like we can we can try and imagine what it is what is going on in Hal's mind. Right. But then ultimately, to what extent does that match up with the computer process uh, that's, that's taking place, the actual computer.
0: Well, this is a great question, the, the question of AI psychology, mm-hmm. uh, because normally in order to understand a computer program, what you would do is you'd want to go and look at its code and see what its code is doing. But obviously, a program as complex as a conversational artificial intelligence is not you you can't really analyze it that way right because it's probably been I, I mean i don't know if they knew this at the time but based on the way that we train machines like this today they they go through like machine learning through say like deep neural networks right. which produce rules that generate outcomes that match the outcomes you try to train them toward, but eventually these the rules they generate are kind of opaque to us. Like, it's hard for us to understand why they're doing what they're doing. They can train themselves to produce the kind of output we want, but it you know, they're sort of a black box to us, just like other minds are in a way. Like, you yeah. can't see inside somebody else's mind and understand what's happening. You can only judge by their external behavior. And so... We have processes like psychology where we try to understand people's motivations. And at some point, you've got to wonder if the best way of understanding an artificial intelligence will not be through looking at its code and what it's doing because it's just too complex for us to understand and we don't get what the rules are. Instead, you'll have to make inferences based on machine psychology. I'm sure
1: there are some wonderful examples of this. I'm going to put this out to our uh, sci-fi readers out there. But I, w- I wonder, has there been? Is, is there? Are there? Are there fictional like AI psychologists that oh. pop up in sci-fi? Oh, absolutely! Uh, in iRobot. Oh, of course! I, how could I forget yeah. all of the <laughs> all of the Asimov's iRobot yeah, stories? Of uh, course, Doctor, yes.
0: What's her name? Susan Calvin? Is that right? Oh, she, I think I she's think a robot so. psychologist.
1: Yes, I. I remember. I read all of these when I was uh, in junior high and I was it was one of these times where like now I don't do this but at the time I always would make a, a, a distinctive choice in which actor I was casting as, uh, as a given part uh-huh. and so I always chose to cast her as Sir Gourney Weaver so oh uh, yeah that's a good one yeah I mean it also shows my you know limitations of of casting out uh, uh, stories in your mind when you've only seen, you know, so many different sci-fi films as a kid.
0: Well, uh,
1: I think she would make a great Dr.
0: Susan Calvin. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it is Susan Calvin. That's her name. Yeah, and she's a robo-psychologist. So, no, this has absolutely been explored in science fiction before. I mean, I wonder, I'm wondering if this will literally be the, at some point, the best way we have of understanding what an AI is doing, because it'll be too complex and too opaque to try to understand it at a mechanistic level. We have to understand it, like get the get the gestalt in the same way that a psychologist would from interviewing a person.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to imagine here, and, and again, this is perhaps something that does exist in a sci-fi story somewhere. Would you have a situation where you have a, a lengthy space flight and you have on one hand the AI that is managing the people and looking for psychosis or any other kind of mental problems in the humans. Mm -hmm. But then you also have to have a human or a portion of the human population whose whole job is to just watch the AI right. and make sure the AI isn't my malfunctioning. And so you end up having to have this careful balance of both sides looking for signs of essentially mental illness.
0: Well, yeah, you, you can imagine a kind of like uh, a talk therapy regime for an AI just to make sure that it's emotionally stable, that it's, you know, that it's experiencing mental health. Mm-hmm. To recognize signs and symptoms of I, I don't know what you would call it in uh, AI but the AI equivalent of delusion or hallucinations or anything else that could be worrying.
1: Uh, quick fun fact here it's uh, it's mentioned in the film that HAL became operational in 1992. Okay, uh, which which I love that because that that makes everything even feel feel even more. Um, like, that's the date that makes me sad as opposed to 2001.
0: Cinematically, 1992, I would say, is the first year of the 1990s <laughs> because in a, in a cinematic time scale, 1990 and 1991 were still
1: the 80s. Yeah, and 92, I was looking this up, sort of a terrible year in actual science fiction <laughs> Yeah, uh, as it gave us such, uh, let's say, challenging to love films as – Alien 3, and mm. Alien 3 is the best film I'm going to list here because it also, this is also the year that gave us Universal Soldier, Free Jack, Ooh. The Lawnmower Man, Oh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Haven't seen it. John Carpenter Joint. It's, uh, it's not a good one. Uh, I, yeah, I enjoyed it at the time, but I was like, a <laughs> child. Uh, and then a Solar Crisis. Uh, Don't know it. Oh, very problematic production history. Uh-huh. Uh, also Split Second. Don't know this one either. Oh, it's for second. It's uh, based... Rudger Hauer running around in sewers with uh, monsters. It's actually... It's I, kind of I'm fun. I'm on board. Yeah. But... Put me in that sewer. There were no – certainly no contenders uh, for the, the the crown of 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1992.
0: But speaking of Alien 3, I mean I would say Alien is another franchise where you do absolutely see echoes of 2001 oh, yes. A Space Odyssey. You see – I mean it's a very different kind of story but you absolutely see the legacy of the way it changed our vision of space travel and space exploration and uh, and kind of the deep the, – the mystery of, of the world beyond. So one more question about Hal. Hal claims to be conscious. Do you believe him, Robert? Is he conscious?
1: I, in watching the film, I, I was definitely thinking about this uh, when he, when Hal brought it up, uh, you know, in, in large part due to our recent topics about consciousness. I keep coming back to the eye, the eye mm-hmm. the of Hal. You know, we spend a lot of time zooming in on it. Uh, there's an implied focus of of attention there Mm -hmm. is how is watching things observing things watching the uh, the two crew members uh, uh, speak reading their lips as they're essentially plotting against him Mm -hmm. Um, how has enormous computing power obviously but does seem capable of focusing his attention on given problems people and situations so if you lean towards a, a, an explanation of, of human consciousness that is more about uh, focused attention, attention schema theory, and you know the use of limited cognitive uh, um, uh, m- m- uh, mechanisms to, uh, to to tackle any given problem or scenario, then, then I buy the idea that HAL is conscious. Well I don't know. I mean and I don't know if, it's, if he's conscious by necessity or by design, if you're looking at it in, in this light, though. I
0: very much am persuaded by the idea that consciousness has something deep to do with attention uh, from a from a brain structure standpoint. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't know if focus and attention is enough for consciousness because you can yeah. imagine just making an automated security camera that tracks things across. Right. You wouldn't assume that that thing was conscious. So it, it seems very true to me that consciousness in humans definitely has something strong to do with attention but I don't know if just the ability to focus and give attention to things creates consciousness.
1: It's true. Now, but, but then, you know, another thing that comes up in all of this is just the, the question. I believe it was the question that I, uh, I asked uh, Max Tegmark in, mm-hmm. uh, in my interview with him uh, from previous episode. Uh, is it possible? Would you, would you be able to have a super intelligent machine? Would you be able to have a HAL 9000 that wasn't conscious or is consciousness essential to, the, to, to its function? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, obviously, that's
0: not something we know the answer to. But mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to wonder if – yeah, if there could be such a thing as great intelligence without consciousness.
1: Yeah, like is Hal, quote-unquote, conscious because Hal has to be conscious to do what he does mm-hmm. or is it all about making the humans comfortable, giving the humans something uh, that they can – relate to and and have a conversation with.
0: Yeah, so it would be a great irony if the designers of HAL made him act like he is conscious to make the crew members more comfortable around him, make him seem more like a person that they can get along with. But in fact, the irony is that when David Bowman has to go kill HAL, HAL begs for his life because oh. he simulates consciousness. He yeah. says, "I'm afraid."
1: That's such a heartbreaking moment. Yeah, because he says that towards the very end. Yeah. yeah. And he says it over and over again. Yeah. And it kind of makes me hate David Bowman a little bit. Yeah. Like, I know I know Hal just killed a bunch of people, but I'm still kind of like, oh, Bowman, you have no chill. Where well, you're, you're falling for those sly machine appeals. They're, yeah. they're getting under your skin. They were, they were. I mean, in many ways, Hal is like a child in yeah. this. You know, he's, he's a very, he's a different type of child. He has a capable, there's a calmness and a reason to him that uh, you generally do not find in a child that is far more emotional. But... uh but yeah, there's there is this childlike element, so it's like Bowman is killing a child, especially towards the end when he is uh, he's singing Daisy.
0: Yeah, he's singing a song. It's uh, it's it's incredibly unnerving. Yeah, uh, and that scene is mostly remembered when people make jokes about it now. Yeah, like that's the primary context in which that scene comes up. But if you watch it in, in the context of the movie, it is a deeply uh, disturbing, weird, uh, surreal scene. It kind of makes it takes you out of your body in a way.
1: Yeah. All right, so we're we're beginning to run out of time here. Uh, we should probably We've talk gone about. Gone long, yeah. We should t- probably talk about those aliens that. Uh, oh yeah, there's to aliens. To kind of dictate the entire um, you know movement of the plot. So of course, there's the huge
0: question of of what is happening at the end of the movie after David Bowman goes through the Stargate uh, and he's in that room with the weird you know neoclassical furniture and the paintings mm-hmm. and he and he turns into the Star Child. What is happening there? Uh, on one hand, I. I can definitely see that the creators try to resist explaining literally what's happening there it might be that they don't have a literal answer there is one audio clip that is supposedly of kubrick uh but i think it's unconfirmed whether it's kubrick or not but it's been alleged a that secret it is. kubrick recording well it was i think it was a recording supposedly made by a filmmaker who was doing a documentary oh, and interviewed in and claimed to have interviewed Kubrick uh, and was released many years later. But if this uh, clip of Kubrick talking is actually genuine, he explains – you know, he says like I, I've been resistant to explaining the ending. But if you must know, basically what's happening is that Bowman has been put into a kind of cosmic zoo – uh, it's a place where he can be observed by these creatures from, you know, galactic civilization. And the zoo is, it has this sort of like inaccurate historical furniture. They've tried mm-hmm. to create an environment that he would think was pretty, like yeah. simulating his natural environment. So they have this like French, you know, kind of furniture and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's kind of in the same way that like a human zoo might put a tiger in a cage with, something kind of roughly approximating its natural environment but not in a very not in a very accurate way.
1: Huh. I I I like I like this explanation. I mean of course it in, inevitably reminds me of Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse 5. Yeah. A uh, very different type of do, uh, zoo, very right. different, very different story entirely. Uh but but ultimately the same scenario. Uh-huh. Let's just put him in here and uh watch him go.
0: And then of course the the alleged Kubrick in this recording says that after they're sort of finished with him after after they've finished observing him they transform him into some kind of god into some kind of super being and send him back to earth uh and that that he you know that kubrick says this is something that happens in a lot of myths which is very true you know like the a human gets the, the apotheosis kind of narrative mm-hmm. a human gets transformed into a star or a heavenly being or a god or a demigod and look at what they can do now
1: yeah and and I know that this idea is more borne out in the the literature and in Clark's writings, but at the same time i I can't watch the the final portions of the film without thinking of it and and contemplating it more as a almost kind of a riddle of the sphinx kind of moment, you yeah, know? like having this encounter with this deadly potentially deadly or at least powerful uh inhuman force mm. and in, in doing so, you are contemplating. You're just forced to contemplate the nature of man because there is this sense of it is kind of like the riddle of the Sphinx, where you're seeing Bowman progressively age and go through at least the remaining uh, phases of human existence, mm-hmm. and then, well, and then if you count the baby, it kind of comes back around to the first model.
0: Well, I like uh, so the model of change that I like in that scene is sort of similar to what we were talking about with Ebert's interpretation of what happens with the monolith and the, the ape-like creatures. Mm-hmm. So the ape-like creatures see the monolith and it's not even necessarily that it does something to their brains – physically to change them into smarter organisms or something. is just seeing it. It's just the inspiration, the experience of what that shape is like that inspires them to pick up the bone. I I like that interpretation. And so what if at the end it's it's you know that to the millionth power. It's that David Bowman has seen such things. He's been he's experienced such a different reality than he thought was possible in the presence of these aliens with all their technological power that he is in a sense transformed the same way that the ape like creatures are transformed, but just by what they've seen.
1: Yeah, I mean, he probably saw colors that don't exist in the real world world for like a thousand years there in that segment. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I like that in- interpretation as well. But there is a sense of transformation. I mean, obviously, he does become something else or the thing that was Bowman becomes this new entity uh, in a sense. When he comes back and looks over
0: the earth, what is that? Is he there in a benevolent way, in a malevolent way? What's he going to do?
1: I think that was kind of a great riddle to uh, to close out the episode on. Like what – what is he going to do? what What is the what is this next uh, phase in, in human evolution going to produce? You know, what will the the higher human form be like? Uh, what will it be? Uh, will it be as dangerous and uh, self destructive as what we have now, or you know, in in which case the the Bowman Starchild is is a destroyer, uh, returning to uh, his birth world, or is is, hum, is humanity going to uh, become something nobler? In which case. He is returning as a savior.
0: Or is it going to transcend our physical forms altogether? Is our future a future of information alone? Do we become Mm. intelligence in some way
1: rather than becoming a biological species? These are all great questions. And one of the great things about 2001, what makes it a great movie, is that it forces us to ask these kinds of questions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's one for the ages, man.
1: All right. As we close up, I I will say – uh, there was a little bit I wanted to discuss about the idea of an alien civilization storing a monolith on the other side of the moon. But I think we talked about it a little bit in our Ancient Aliens episode. Uh, there, there was some, uh, some, some earlier writings from uh, Carl Sagan where he actually referenced um, um, Clark and said, oh, well, this is actually a pretty good idea of how an alien civilization might have left a sentinel Uh, for us to uh, encounter uh, should we reach a certain level of technological advancement. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have come across no such artifacts. No, we have not. Uh, But we do have uh, 2001, which is a really good movie. This is the kind of thing we might want to leave on the dark side of a a lunar body uh, for another uh, civilization to discover. All right. So uh, if you want to listen to more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find All of the episodes, uh, including that Ancient Aliens episode that uh, we mentioned there, uh, and all these episodes that have dealt with consciousness, AI, space travel... Uh, microgravity you name it Uh, and uh, you also find links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and as always if you want to support the show the best thing you can do is rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do so
0: huge thanks as always to our wonderful audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison if you want to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other uh, with uh, suggestions for a future topic or just to say hi let us know where you listen from uh, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.
1: Zumo Play.